On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about Canada's banks and, well, they're making a lot of money. They're making a lot of money, but why? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Before you answer that, you're going to want to listen. Uh, we're going to be talking about beer, the not alcoholized kind. Why are we talking about that? Oh, well, you're going to want to stick around for that too. And if you like the Rolling Stones, oh, you really got to stick around because we are going to tell you about something that you are absolutely going to want to see. Lots of reasons to stick around. Don't go anywhere. Grab a beverage, open up the podcast, and settle in for the evening. We got it all. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Often, when companies are doing well in our country, it signifies strength in the economy. The question is, um, leaving aside whether or not a lot of average people are thrilled with banks doing well, do banks showing such big profits mean the same thing? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business to try and help us answer this one. Mr. Ryder, thank you so much for doing this today. Glad to be with you. So uh, I, I don't think, as I said, I don't think a lot of people listening right now are uh, rubbing their hands in glee and saying, oh, goody, banks are making more money. But, <laughs> um, except maybe the bankers who are listening, but is this good news for our economy or is this bad news for our economy when banks are doing well? Well, well, it's good news, but it's good news on two different fronts. So let me take you back. I have to go back, and then we'll go forward to March of 2020. And the mm. World Health Organization declared a pandemic. And the banking regulator, not the banks themselves, but the banking regulator said, oh, gosh, pandemic, that doesn't sound good. That sounds like businesses might be closing, people might be losing their jobs. So the banking regulator turned to our big six banks and said, okay, guys, expect a wave of bad news coming. I want you to build up some liquidity. You can't increase dividends. You can't buy back shares. You can't do big bonuses to executives. Think about building up a war chest of cash. And the banks responded not only by doing that, putting a bank a war chest of cash, but they also wrote down, just prematurely, wrote down about 10% of their loans saying, well, if they're, going to, if they're going to default, let's get some of this news out of the way right now. And so they were battening down the hatches for the evil uh, economic forces of the pandemic. And then our government said, well, wait a minute, let's, let's try to help out the average person. So they created something called CERB. They also created something called the Canadian Emergency Wage Subsidy for businesses. They even came up with a commercial rent assistance program. And guess what happened? 2020, as a year, saw the lowest rate of personal bankruptcies and business failures since the year 2000. 20 years, the lowest rate. Those sorts of things, uh, bankruptcies, what have you, had dropped nearly 25% last year. So the banks had prepared for the worst, but the worst didn't happen. So this year, 2021, we start to reopen the economy, closed businesses could reopen, businesses operating at 20% of capacity could go further, and the bank said, well, okay, let's, let's make those loans whole again. We don't need to write down, so we'll reverse the write-downs. So first they get the cash they make from their ordinary day-to-day -day businesses, plus they can bring back the cash that they set aside. So they're doing really, really well. Earlier this month, the start of November, the banking regulator said, you know what I told you about, about uh, don't do dividends and don't buy back shares, what have you? Well, that's passed. Feel free to go ahead and do that. So this week, all of the major banks are going to announce their, their last quarter results. 
And I believe, we believe, they're also going to announce significant dividend increases and even share buybacks, which will drive the price of shares up even more. Who should be thrilled with that? Well, if you've got pension money, if you've got money in the pensions, those pensions, trust me, they're all invested in bank stocks, good blue-chip stocks that give solid returns, but those solid returns are temporarily going to get a lot better over the next month or two. So it is good news. It is a sign, uh, among some other signs, that our economy is coming back. Now, uh, simply, because I know there's a lot more than this, but very simply, obvious things, uh, areas where banks make money from us, uh, loans, where they are getting our interest payments and everything else, and services like, you know, debit card, you make a debit payment, they get a little, little bit here and there, but you add that up with everything. So on top of what you just described, does the fact that they are doing really well suggest that we're also spending more, making more debit payments and more credit card payments and that kind of thing and taking out bigger loans? Or is this, are those two things totally separate? Is this entirely what you were describing? No, I wouldn't say they're entirely separate. So there's sort of the day-to-day banking, and that's strong too right now. We certainly saw, we've seen in the housing market, these big jump in prices. That means bigger loans coming from the banks. We've seen people spending money as we get into this Christmas season. We're probably going to set a record um, for Christmas spending. We, we already set a record on Friday for Black Friday in North America. Monday, Cyber Monday, we don't have the tally yet. That will set a record. So clearly the banks are doing well. And you're absolutely right. There's sort of two ways they make money. They make it on loaning people money. But because interest rates are still so low, they don't make as much there. What they really make their money on are fees. Fees. So it could be a fee to use a credit card, could be a fee to use a bank, but it could be a fee to cash a check or a fee to do something else. And uh, you might say, well, look, if they're making all this money, maybe they should be reducing those fees. Oddly, that doesn't cross anybody's mind. Let's keep the fees where they are and let the money roll in. But uh, these are all good, healthy signs that our economy is coming back. Well, that's what I was going to say is that like, okay, there's, there's two sides to this. The spending, if you're having a lot of uh, debit fees that are coming in, that suggests people are spending money. We want that in the economy to get the economy churning. But what about the other side though? What about the, even though they're not making a ton on interest, the fact that we have so much in loans that they're making some interest, does that, is that concerning that we've got so much tied up in our loans now with the banks? Well, it's concerning if, and let me just call it that, if there's a speed bump. So if we are truly on our way back, we've turned the corner and it's all full speed ahead, everything's great, and whatever debt we've accumulated, we'll be able to carry. The concern, and this is what reared its head on Friday and which has continued to spook the stock market to not just Friday but today as well, is this thing called the Omicron variant. And it's very early days, and I don't, I don't want to sound, uh, uh, you know, like a Cassandra here predicting the worst, but uh, if the Omicron variant is more contagious, and if the Omicron variant causes more severe reactions in the body, then it's not that hard to start to extrapolate and say, oh my God, are we on our way to another lockdown? Just as we were turning the corner, we thought 2022 was going to be this great year. Could we be going backwards? Now, The scientific community has asked people to stop panicking, 
Give them a couple of weeks so they can study this all. We're also at a different spot than we were in March of 2020 because we have nearly 90% of the population vaccinated. Now, again, a good question with the vaccine work against Omicron. They say, just give us a couple more weeks to do some research and we'll let you know what's going to happen with all this. So I think we're in a better position and therefore I don't think there is going to be a speed bump that sends us the other way. But we are worried about our debt loads. The average Canadian has about $1.65 of debt for every dollar of income they have. For younger Canadians, most of that is tied up in mortgages, and, and we just don't need any more uh, tumult in the mortgage market than we have right now. I'm surprised that it's just $1.65 when you consider what mortgages people have to take now to buy a home. I'm surprised it's not way higher than that. Well, it's it's on average, Scott. So, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say so something enough, to you. Yes. I'm not saying this as a way to brag, but I don't have a mortgage. I paid off my house, so I am mortgage-free. So I have zero. My debt <laughs> ratio is zero. I have no debt at all outstanding. Somebody else might have 250%. When you average sure. that out, that's how you get to the 165 or 1.65 for every dollar of income. So you're right. There are some people who are highly leveraged. That's, again, why banks are concerned. It's also why uh, the various powers that be said we're going to stress test your mortgage, not at the rate you're really going to pay. We're going to stress test it at 5.25%. Now, today in Canada, you can get mortgages in the 2% range, but even if that's what you're going to get, let's test you at five and a quarter to make sure you can carry it in case those interest rates start to go up. Marvin Ryder from the Negroot School of Business. Always appreciate your time. Been too, been too long since we had you on. Thanks for doing this. I'm glad to be with you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let us talk for a few moments here about what you pay for a beer if you buy it at the store, not at a restaurant. If you go to the beer store or the grocery store now and you buy beer. Uh, In 2020, what you, the collective you, all you Canadians out there, what you paid in excise taxes, $676 million for beer. Roughly 47% of the price of the beer you buy goes to the government. It's a lot. But here's where, and I read this this week and I thought, we got to talk about this. Here's where things get really weird because some of you, for whatever reason, and good for you if you do, no no problem with this, uh, some of you like to drink non-alcoholic beer. Could be any number of reasons why that's your choice, but you do. You're paying the same sin tax, apparently, on that non-alcoholic beer as on the real stuff. David Clement is the North American Affairs Manager with the Consumer Choice Center. He joins us now. David, thank you for doing this today. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Uh, Before we get into the tax and all the sort of weirdness around this, because it is strange. Very um, strange. Is this an issue, honestly, is this an issue even worth discussing in that is there really a market for the non-alcoholic stuff or is this such a niche that it really doesn't make a difference? So initially, so I, I came to learn about this because somebody mentioned it to me in passing and I thought it was a joke. I mean, I, in my head, I was like, well, there's no way that they would have a syntax for non-alcoholic beer. That doesn't make any sense. Um, so I started to do some research, and although I'm not particularly interested in non-alcoholic beers myself, hmm. uh, it's forecasted to be a $4 billion industry uh, by 2025. So it is growing. Um, there is a lot of interest in it. It's not 
Um, it's, it's for health conscious consumers, I guess, and folks who want to limit, who maybe enjoy the socialization of having a beer, but don't want to um, have the alcohol that, that goes along with it. So at first I thought that it, it was really just a fad when, when I had seen people drinking it, but no, it's quite popular. Uh, it's catching on. And that really brought me to the research I did, which led to the op-ed on why mm. on earth would the federal government have a sin tax for non-alcoholic beer? Well, there's another thing too. Before again, before right before we get to the taxes, there was a time when non-alcoholic beer was horrendous. I mean, it was just awful mm-hmm. stuff. And you know, they have the the manufacturers have made it better. And so, yeah, I, I can see how there could be a growing market for it if it tastes more like it and you know is is, is more similar. Anyway, okay. So, if it's non-alcohol, the, the whole idea of a syntax, as I understand it is to either deter people from using it too much mm-hmm. or if you are going to use it and then you're going to potentially have health issues, we're going to charge you up front basically for the health care you're going to require down the road. Why would there be a syntax on something that is, for all intents and purposes, pop? Yeah, and, th- and this is the thing that I, I couldn't understand. Um, I brought this to the attention actually, of a, of a liberal MP, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, who I have a tremendous amount of, of respect for, and he didn't even know. And he said, well, obviously, this should be, this should be gone away with. There's no justification. Um, it certainly doesn't follow, fall into either of those two buckets, which you just mentioned. And so at this point, it just really feels like an unnecessary tax grab. But it's also incredibly inconsistent because the federal government doesn't have an excise tax for non-alcoholic wine or non-alcoholic spirits. And so it's just beer. It's a very, very strange application of the syntax to one product in one product line in the non-alcoholic space. Isn't non-alcoholic wine just grape juice? (laughs) Is there such a thing? I don't know. I mean, I did do a little bit of research myself. I have tried some of these drinks. Some of them I actually really enjoy uh, in regards to taste, whether it be the wine or uh, the beer, it's not necessarily my cup of tea, but I can, I can see why people would enjoy them. Um, and yeah, there's this weird disparity where tax policy doesn't treat all non-alcoholic beverages equally. Okay. So do you believe now you mentioned off the top that there may be a variety of reasons why people might choose non-alcoholic beer. Uh, and -hmm. again, I I think that's, that's, you know, we can probably guess at a whole bunch of them and, and good for people who, who make that choice. That's fine. If it was cheaper, like way cheaper because you got rid of this excise tax, do you believe that the market would grow even larger, which would help more people to choose this as opposed to real beer, which might be more healthy because now it's kind of the same thing. I mean, if you're not looking to get drunk or not looking to get a buzz, it's kind of the same thing. I could drink this and it would be a lot cheaper. Do you you think this would grow that industry? Yeah, I I do. Because I think if faced with the choice of, let's say a $7 pint, one being non-alcoholic and one being alcoholic, I mean, it's, it, there's no there's no comparative advantage unless you're really committed to it. So I do think it would raise awareness because it, people's eyeballs immediately would, would go, oh, okay, what is this? This is exponentially cheaper. Okay, zero alcohol. Maybe I'll give this a try. And the thing is, is that if they were to get rid of the tax, that would actually be in line with how the province treats non-alcoholic beer because non-alcoholic beer is not subject to the same retail restrictions as alcohol. It's the reason why 
for decades, you could find non-alcoholic beer in a grocery store before grocery stores were allowed to sell any alcohol. Uh, so it would really just be streamlining the federal government and the provincial government's approach and saying, hey, guys, this doesn't have alcohol in it. It's not deserving of the same treatment or similar treatment. But you would think, I would think that governments would want people to move as many as possible to non-alcoholic beer because of the fewer issues that could be, I mean, less drinking and driving, which governments mm -hmm. are always telling us don't do that, which with mm -hmm. good reason. I mean, no, we're not mocking that with good of reason. Um, yeah, less public drunkenness and issues that might spill off from that, that the police have to respond to. Uh, fewer health issues for people who overuse. Uh, this would be something I would think governments would want to be pushing people towards. Well, not only would it be something that governments would want to do, in particular for this federal government who has championed harm reduction uh, across a variety of different um, substance and abuse uh, issues, with the exception of vaping, they're not particularly good on that harm reduction policy, um, but they've really made this a, a platform and a, a pillar of of what the liberal government stands for. And so this really feels like a giant blind spot because from a harm reduction perspective, like you just mentioned, this is a no brainer. I guess the flip side though, is that, um, you know, if we, if we are going to talk about addictions, uh, maybe the biggest addiction out there is the government to taxes oh, and, certainly. um, you know, I don't know, maybe if the government looks at this and, you know, you can say we would like to reduce harm, but we're really not looking to give up that. What did I say? The number was the beginning $676 million in taxes. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were kind of addicted to those too. Yeah. Those, that's the total tax. I think that that is just outrageous. The amount that Canadians pay in regards to taxes, especially if you compare us to the U S um, it's way too high. That is obviously incredibly regressive um, because lower income people enjoy having a beer just like those who are of higher incomes. And so it's it's incredibly regressive for them. Uh, there wouldn't be much revenue loss from the federal government as it stands right now. So you wouldn't I don't think I would you would find a, a federal uh, politician who would put their foot down and say, no, we need the marginal portion from non-alcoholic beer to stay in because we need that revenue so desperately. I could see them putting their foot down on alcoholic beer because the government has now, in my opinion, become very reliant on sin taxes, mm. um, more so than they need to be. And so this is the thing. It, for me, getting rid of the excise tax on non-alcoholic beer would be consistent with how they treat other non-alcoholic products. It's, it, it's great from a harm reduction perspective. <laughs> it grows an industry, um, which would most likely have some positive health externalities. Um, and it's not going to make a huge dent in the federal coffer if they were to give up this little piece of the pie. And so uh, I, yeah. would, I, I would hope that moving forward, um, some other folks um, like a member of parliament, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith can come around and, and realize that this is, this is pretty silly. Not, and you're right. Not like, even if they were to do this, not a hundred percent of the beer drinking population is going to say, Hey, give me the non-alcoholic stuff. It oh, might be 5% yeah. and that's a 5% that you can help people with. And still, you're still going to get 650 million of that yeah. tax money. So you're still not going to go, you know, anyway, uh, Dave, we're closer to 670 million 
Yeah. yeah. Uh, David, David Clement, North American Affairs Manager with the Consumer Choice Center. You can find his op-ed piece that he wrote. Uh, it's in the spec.com. Uh, you can go to the website and look it up there. David, really appreciate the time. Thanks for bringing this up. Great idea. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you're a fan of the Rolling Stones, you're going to want to make the drive to Kitchener sometime in the next couple months um, because you're going to want to go see, I think, from everything I'm hearing, you're going to want to go see Unzipped. What is Unzipped? Uh, well, we're going to find out in just a second, but the general description is it's an exhibition of artifacts and clothing and memorabilia and who knows what else from the Rolling Stones. And yes, I said Kitchener, which I'm not sure would have been the first place that I would have guessed if you're going to have an exhibition of Rolling Stones memorabilia. I don't know that Kitchener would have been the first place that I would have guessed it would have landed in as the only Canadian stop, but it is. And the guy who brought it to Kitchener, his name is David Marskell. He is CEO of The Museum, which is the name of the place where it is being held. And he joins us now. David, how are you today? I'm doing really well, Scott. Nice to uh, be talking to you. Nice to nice to talk to you as well, David. And as I say, I, I'm not sure that myself or a lot of other people would have said, you know, if I was going to go find the heartbeat of the Rolling Stones in this country, Kitchener is the place. How did you land this exhibition in Kitchener? Yeah, it's a it's a popular question, and and it really is um, about our tenacity and punching over our weight a little bit. But you know. Also, the Rolling Stones are known for popping up in small places. I mean, they, they played the Palais Royale and the Horseshoe in Toronto. And so, you know, we had to prove our credibility to them, make sure that the band manager was comfortable that we could pull this off. And, and we did that. We, we've had some great exhibits in the past. And um, as, as the band manager said, we really, really, really wanted it. So um, we're delighted to have it and be hosting it in Kitchener, Ontario. Yeah, and you know, it's a good point you make about playing in small spaces. Was it not the Stones that years ago suddenly showed up on the stage at the El Macombo in Toronto and surprised everyone? Was it not the El Macombo? I think? It, it was March 4th and 5th of 1977. I lined up oh. down Spadina Avenue. I did not get in. It was billed as the uh, Cockroaches, and the opening act was April Wine, and uh, it was the worst kept secret. And it was the Rolling Stones, and it was a very eventful night. Um, the Prime Minister's wife was there, and uh, all sorts of fun things ensued. Uh, yes, yes. Well, we'll leave the Prime Minister's wife and now mother out of this one for now. That's a, that's a discussion for another day. Um, okay, so Unzipped, it is a museum exhibition, but, you know, David, it, to say it's a museum exhibition, I, I don't know if that actually, from what I understand, really gives the proper tenor or flavor of what this is. What is this? Yeah, it's, um, first of all, it's very large. Uh, it, it, the quantity and quality of the show is extreme. It's an experience. There's four floors. Um, it is, it was curated and produced by the Rolling Stones. And it's been in about 10 cities in the world, including London and Tokyo and Sydney and New York and, oh my God, Kitchener. And it, it has, um, as I've seen it now come to life and fully loaded in, I'm realizing that, yes, it's a Rolling Stones tribute and all the amazing history of, of their six, uh, almost six decades, but it's also a snapshot of six, de six um, decades of, of pop culture. And if you think, if you look at it through that lens, going back to 62 when they began and the Kennedy assassinations and 
Vietnam War and, and uh, women's lib and civil unrest and all of the things that happened, it comes through in their lyrics. It comes through in their album covers. And um, so, so that's an interesting way to look at it. And with Charlie's recent passing, you know, that era is the beginning of the end is upon us, perhaps. But um, there are costumes by by Prada and Dior and incredible uh, designers. There's guitar collections. There's Warhol artwork related to the Rolling Stones. Uh, there's obviously music and interactive things where you can mix your own songs. And Charlie Watts' drum kit uh, from 65. Um, it's a very immersive exhibition, and it's much, much larger than I think people, no matter what I say, when they people start to arrive, there's a wow factor to it. And, and from what I heard you just say, this is not stuff that collectors have gathered over the years this is this is their stuff that is on display yeah and it, it that part is really really cool scott i mean to see you know ronnie wood's guitar collection or to see mick's handwriting where he he wrote out very clearly and precisely the the lyrics to certain songs and and the and the chords that would go along with them and things that are from their private collection and, and as you say you, you you will never get to see them again Hmm. So that I would assume then that if this is an authorized collection from the Rolling Stones themselves, it probably means the band or its reps or somebody related to them probably wanted to have a say in how all this was presented. This is not just you being told here, do what you want. You, you probably had some insight or input from them. No, it, it was 100% curated by the Rolling Stones. Uh, Eileen Gallagher there was their curator and uh, she put the show together and um, no, it's 100% their show. I mean, our building, we had to fit it in. So certain things got moved around a little bit, but it's, it's their show uh, that they've produced for their fans. All right. So like specific right down to the, the writings of what things are on the wall and everything else, like this is right down, this is their words. Yeah. And, 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 you know, one of the great fun things that seems to be the, the darling of Instagram is um, a recreation of where they lived in 62 in the early sixties in Edith Grove. And um, it just reminds me of when my sons were 14 in their bedrooms. And it's really, really cool to see this recreation. And if you go to the rollingstones.com and, and click on exhibitions, there's a great uh, video of, of Mick and Keith talking about this recreation and how horrendous it was to live there and so on. It, it's really quite insightful. Now, I I know it's not the Stones, what I'm going to just say here, but a lot of people these days, and we're going to be talking about it on the show tomorrow night, a lot of people talking about the Beatles documentary that's now just come up. And I wonder if that's going to even inspire more people to want to be interested in this, because being able to watch around the same time frame, the creation of music and everything else, I, I got to believe, I mean, those two bands are kind of linked in some ways. I have to believe that's going to inspire some people to say, I'm really interested in seeing about them as well. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I hadn't sort of thought of it in that uh, that light, but I do think you're right. The, the planets are aligning for us. I mean, for this exhibition, I mean, people want to get out. They want to go and be with their friends yes. and do fun things yes. and so on and, and party. But, um, you know, the the old, uh, who are you, a Beatles or a Stones fan? Um, and I, I've teed up the Beatles documentary. I haven't seen it yet, but everybody talks about it in a very glowing way. So I really look forward to seeing that. Um, but again, we're talking about an era. We're talking about 60 years of, you know, baby boomers and, and uh, what happened going back to the 60s and, and what 
sort of drove the music and the lyrics and 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 for both bands um and uh it's uh it's quite extraordinary i mean it, the interesting thing for me is um the rolling stones are still going and mm-hmm. last tuesday night a week ago they were in miami i was fortunate enough a week ago saturday to see them in austin texas and they're planning to go back on the road next spring for their 60th anniversary in 2022 so it's wonderful and it they are totally dis- you know, different bands for sure. And they're both, they're both amazing. You said four stories. I don't know if you said it or if I read it, but I think I saw 10,000 square feet of this. So all this stuff that's in there, what's the one thing that you caught yourself staring at a little bit longer than other things because you were totally blown away by it? You know, Scott, I honestly, I, I see something different every time I go through it and, and it will take people at least 90 minutes to properly go through it, if not more. Um, but you know, today I was kind of marveling at these, these lyrics that, um, that, um, Mick has written. And, and I don't know if people have had a chance to go to the rock and roll hall of fame, but some of the artists, they scribble all over the page and they write down and they're drawing things. This is very pristine, very, you know, just the way he's, his thought process must have um, uh, this creativity must have come out of him to write these. And I, and again, you will never have a chance to see these again. So that that's kind of high on my list today. Yesterday it was, there is this fantastic mashup of, of um, sympathy for the devil. And it goes from 1997 to 2012. So the same song continues, but they've edited. So it's Nick and different, eras and he's wearing certain costumes and clothing and as you're watching it on our one of our stages there those six or eight costumes are there and um and i had no idea that he was wearing prada and dior and all these fantastic uh, uh world designers and so on so that was my highlight yesterday today it's the lyrics and tomorrow i'll, I'll find something new <laughs> um did i see a picture of you somewhere posted online the other day of you with ronnie wood Oh yeah, that was kind of cool, right? Like, (laughs) oh yeah, um, oh yeah, just hanging out with Ronnie Wood—that's cool. Yep. Yeah, it it was. I'm privileged to have had the opportunity to, because we're working with the band, to to be hosted and go down to Austin and and be uh, tested by their COVID uh, COVID um, um, official, and and uh, I was in their bubble at their hotel, and and I had an opportunity to spend some time with Ronnie and Sally Wood. I was with a colleague who has um, uh, seven and five-year-old daughters, and they have five-year-old twin daughters. So that that sort of broke the ice. And you know what? They're just nice people. They're just you know just like meeting somebody and having having a coffee or a beer or something, and uh, and chatting with them. They were really really wonderful to uh, to get to meet. So that yes, that was uh, really really awesome. And uh, it was really tough to not become a fan and you know geek out on them. Mm. Uh, should we uh, expect that sometime because this thing goes till February will there be other members of the Stones who will stop by um, 64 million dollar question anybody who knows me and Scott you and I have a bit of history I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not shy I, I'm tenacious enough that we secured this exhibit and you know I'm asking they have showed up in other cities on, the, on this uh, global tour um, at this point it's no it's no guarantee and I keep asking, and at the right time, I keep asking. And um, again, if the planets align for that one, I would, I would hope so. And and 
you know, we have the Ronnie Wood art show. We have a huge festival around this, all around the region, and it's moving to the Amacombo um, for that anniversary. So I'm possibly I can I can work on getting some the band uh, or some of the band to come to see us or go to Toronto or do both. So I'm on my feet on that one, trying to make it happen. Mm. But at this point, no guarantees. They've not said yes. You mentioned though about the others. This is not just in the museum. Um, you say there there are other places within the city that have sort of latched onto this. Talking about Kitchener, there's other places in the city that have latched onto this and expanded this beyond what you're just doing. Yeah, and you know Hamilton and your listening area has such a great cultural vibrancy, and and we are known in Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge, and Waterloo region sort of more about our tech uh, base, and. Um, I feel this is a blueprint for us uh, or a model for a blueprint for us uh, in the cultural area to do a festival in the future. And um, we have uh, the princess cinema. Uh, you have the sister one there in Hamilton, I believe uh, they're doing a, a series of films over the four months. Um, we have, I mentioned the Ronnie Wood art exhibition, which is in Waterloo, which is a very short distance from, from where we are in Kitchener in Cambridge. We have the fashion history museum, and they've got something called Frock On, and it's connecting costumes and music over many decades. That actually opens tomorrow. Um, we have a, a great speaker series that we're working on. One of my the highlights for me is Sticky Lyrics, and it's um, moderated by Alan Cross. And it's just mm. sort of unpacking words of not only the Rolling Stones, but other music that happened in our lifetime that yeah, maybe those words aren't so cool right now. And um, I found it very interesting on the Stones tour that they're not playing the song Brown Sugar and the lyrics begin on the slave ship and that there are people protesting they're not playing that song. So I I'm, I'm, will be very interested to to have a, 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 a nice conversation about where we go with lyrics of the past and so on. So lots and lots going on and we're a short drive from Hamilton, but there's a reason to stay actually if people wish to. Well, and you mentioned Alan Cross. He, uh, I said we're talking about the Beatles tomorrow, and this uh, Alan will be on tomorrow night to talk about that. So um, all kinds of crossovers. Uh, just before I let you go, and, and you mentioned about you know the the, the template perhaps for this. Um, anyone who follows local politics in any city knows that nothing comes without detractors and uh, seemingly without a fight. Uh, you've had a few of those to get this thing up and running. Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I, I don't think I would ever want to be a politician and, and have to, to you know, <laughs> balance all of the things that an awesome community needs to balance. But um, we, we approach the region, and we have seven mayors and one regional chair, and we approach the region, not the city of Kitchener, seeking $100,000 in support for promotion and advertising outside of the region. Because in my mind, there's no question this is going to help reboot our local economy and specifically the hospitality sector. And um, so there were some challenges there and, and detractors on, on that one. But we, we originally it was viewed as supporting the museum and this ex- exhibition. But then it, uh, the narrative sort of changed to it's actually about economic development and our ticket sales. Um, 60% are from outside of our region. So the the um, councillors saw their way clear unanimously to supporting that. And uh, that's allowed us to to put marketing dollars in Buffalo and Quebec City and Ottawa and Detroit and so on. So it's um, it w- they, we're going to leverage this into a big way and bring a lot of people to come and see it. 
Uh, last thing, can, can the museum, and I, I mean, I'm talking about the museum in this, in your case, but in general, can, can, with the show like this, can you make money on this or is what you're doing in addition to providing the show, uh, creating the exposure that people will come back for something else down the road? I think both. I think um, our overriding board strategies, one is to evolve our brand locally and, and, and globally, and I think we're doing that. Uh, we're, we're, we're hitting a number of the strategies and taking the museum out of the museum and all of those types of things. But there's no question we can fill our fill our coffers. I mean, we, we're uh, working to be sustainable. We've balanced our budget in the last couple of years, and this will help us uh, sort of build our our endowment, our restricted funds for the next rainy day. Um, but it also builds our brand for the future and we will, we'll be on the radar of, of people and, and, and hopefully people will consider moving to our community and so on. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of benefits coming out of this. Uh, before I let you go, if people are interested in tickets or finding more about it, what's your website? Where can people find out? Uh, it's as easy as the museum.ca. And uh, Scott, I very much appreciate you taking time to, uh, so much time to talk about this. I hope to see you there, Scott. Love to see you again and, and host you there and then all of your listeners. We look forward to them visiting as well. Appreciate it. David Marskell from the museum. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. Take care. Have fun. Uh, that is the museum in Kitchener. Again, it's only an hour or so away, uh, the Rolling Stones exhibition. And yes, David mentioned, I should point out, David mentioned that we have some history, like 35 years ago now, when I was a summer student, once upon a time, David was my boss's boss. So yes, we, we do go back a long, long way. And now David does many important things like getting Rolling Stones concerts or not concerts, shows put together. Uh, and I talk about it. <laughs> so, you know, one of us has achieved great things and the other, well, I'm still hoping. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.